Have you ever heard people talking about codependency or maybe you've seen it referenced in an article or a book or even a movie at some point and then wondered, wait, what if that's me? Am I codependent? If you've ever wondered this, and especially if you have loved ones who have addictions or even seem to have a lot of chaos that causes you heartache or heartburn, then today's episode is for you. We're going to tell our stories of discovering codependency within ourselves, how it might be manifesting in your life, and some of the things you can start doing to overcome it. excited to be back doing a solo episode with you, Neil. Thank you. And this is on a topic that randomly came up when I was sharing some Instagram stories yesterday. And I was just talking about the concept of how it's fine to change your mind, how you want to keep commitments to other people and to yourself. And I see a lot of people say on social media, you would never break a commitment to other people. Don't break commitments to yourself, which I agree with. I just said casually, One of the best things I learned in recovery was that it's okay to change your mind. And somebody replied and said, wait, you said that so casually. What do you mean recovery? So I said, oh, okay. I forget. Some people don't know about our story of addiction recovery, and we've been super open about that for years. So I linked to our story, which is, you can find it on mintarrow.com slash ARP, or it's right on our homepage too, mintarrow.com. It's easy to find. So then I polled my audience about who understands codependency or or what your level of understanding is. So most people were in the middle. So there are a few people who said, yes, I completely have a solid understanding of codependency. Then the middle was, I think I understand, but maybe not completely. And then the bottom category was, I have no idea. So it was something like 70, 80% were right in that middle category. So I thought, we should address this and talk about it and teach. And I would love to teach what I know because it has not just impacted, but improved the quality of my life drastically, I would say. So I wanted to start out with obviously just a definition of codependency. So this comes from what I would say is the codependency Bible. It's Codependent No More by Melody Beattie. So this definition comes from an article written by Robert Subby entitled Codependency, an Emerging Issue. And he said, codependency is an emotional, psychological, and behavioral condition that develops as a result of an individual's prolonged exposure to and practice of a set of oppressive rules, rules which prevent the open expression of feelings as well as the direct discussion of personal and interpersonal problems which is an interesting definition, but I think I relate to this one more that Melody Beattie wrote. And she said, a codependent person is one who has let another person's behavior affect him or her and who is obsessed with controlling that person's behavior. That's a little bit easier to understand. And I think that it is a little more clear as far as do I fall into that category? How deeply do I fall into that category? And my belief is that Most of us have some codependent behaviors while some of us not might not be like raging codependents like I used to be and like I am still in recovery from all the time because I'm married to an addict. So this is one interesting thing, though. If we go all the way back to when you and I were very first in your outpatient recovery program, 
I remember it was probably like, I don't know, maybe week four or five of the outpatient recovery. So we would go weekly and it was like a group. It was a group of men and women. And for the most part, the men were in recovery from pornography addiction and the women were like the supportive spouses. And they said, okay, this week we're going to focus on codependency. And do you remember what they said next? I can't remember. No, I don't. It's so good. So whoever was teaching the lesson, and there were a few different people with PhDs or whatever that taught these classes, the person said, so all of the addicts in the room are going, oh, good, finally, you're going to talk to my wife about her problem. But they said, here's what you don't realize is the addicts in the room are more codependent than their spouses. And I felt like most people were like, what? (laughs) So do you identify as a codependent person, Neil? I don't know. You tell me. No, no, no. I'm just saying, well, no, I'm just kidding because that's that's being codependent. (laughs) It's like, hey, you decide for me what I am or am not. Or, I mean, that's my understanding of of, a part of being codependent is like I, the other, somebody else dictates 100% what I do, what I don't do, who I am. If you're okay. But then on the, on the flip side of that coin, then I'm like resentful about it and trying to control that myself in my own ways or or coming up with like passive aggressive techniques or something to try and balance that out somehow. Totally. I think we'll circle back to that in a minute because that is such an interesting part of our story and of your story when you kind of realized your codependency and how I was playing a role in that once I cut that yeah. off. But mm-hmm. we'll we'll come back to that. So to just go back to this really basic and a little bit clearer definition, a codependent person is one who's let another person's behavior affect them and who's obsessed with controlling that person's behavior. So if you think about the phrase, I often hear the phrase, a mother's only as happy as her unhappiest child. I think that's how it goes. And I just disagree with that because where I, I see where it's coming from. I see the mentality of that phrase. But here's why it's problematic is, especially if you have adult children, if you're only as happy as your most unhappy child, then you're giving someone else permission to tell you how happy you are allowed to be. And that was 100% my problem with you. I just felt like if you were okay in recovery and you were doing great and you were having a good streak, because Neil was always trying. He was always trying to overcome his addiction. So if he was on a 30-day streak or a one-week streak, and he was doing pretty good. I was like, all right, life's good. I can be good because he's being good. Like I can be okay because my husband's making choices that make my life peaceful. Literally, that's how I viewed recovery and our little dance of if you're okay, then I'm okay. And then when you stepped out of that and we did this tango of you're suddenly not okay and I would usually find out about it, then I was in this total victim mentality of my world comes crashing down and I can't help it and it's not my fault and you did that to me. That was my codependent and that's just the beginning. That's just the tip of the iceberg, right? And then there's all the codependent behaviors that were driving a lot of the unhealthy codependent addiction cycles in our marriage. So here's one example of a crazy codependent thing that I did once. 
And I didn't tell you about this till years later, but I one time took your phone and put some like ghost tracking app thing on there so that I could like, it was supposed to, and I don't even think it worked well. And I think I've paid like a hundred dollars for it or something, but it was supposed to like track your every move, like track even like your keystrokes. It was, there was a function where you could track all of the text messages you were sending and all of the websites you were looking at. Cause I thought I'm sick of being lied to. So I'm going to take the power back and I'm going to, I'm not going to be duped anymore. And I thought, this is me taking my power back. And he, But here's the lie, is that that still puts all of really the power in your hands and whatever your behaviors are. And then, like, I think that I'm in power because I can see everything that's happening. But really, all I'm doing is trying to control and obsess over your decisions. And it's just so unhealthy. And at the time, it felt sane. It felt normal. It felt like, well, this is what anyone would do in this situation where they're getting lied to and where their spouse is acting out and they have an addiction. And it's like, it is my responsibility as an as a responsible adult to know what's going on. So since he keeps lying to me, I'm going to figure out a way to not be lied to anymore. And there was something in my brain that thought that that was going to give me power. But here's how it, it totally backfired is that A, the, the app didn't even work correctly. But B, like I said before, it still puts all of the power of how happy I'm allowed to be in your hands, which is obviously very problematic. But when I got to the point where I was sick of living a codependent life, I remember calling Mandy, who we've had on the podcast before, who was my sponsor, and just saying, I just cannot live like this anymore. I found out for the millionth time that you had been lying to me. And I had a little bit of an emotional breakdown for a few days where I just was crying and crying and crying. Do you remember that? I just, yeah, no, like, I do remember that. Sobbing nonstop. We went to the meeting. I think you were afraid to have me go to the meeting, like what I was going to say, because I was just raging, super mad, but super also feeling like my whole world had fallen apart. Cause I just, I thought you had had a good streak. And then I found out yet again that you actually weren't doing well and you were lying to me. So when I called Mandy and said, I just cannot live this way anymore, she said, do you do you just need someone to listen to you or do you want to do something about it? And I was like, yes, tell me. I'll do anything. Thinking she was going to give me some formula to make you stop doing what you were doing to ruin my life. And she said, OK, you need to do the steps. And I was like, what? It's not it's not my problem. I don't need to do the steps. Like almost like a, how dare you tell me that I have work to do. But at that point, I was so desperate that I was like, okay, whatever you say, I'll do anything. And so she gently and lovingly walked me through that process of seeing how I actually was choosing a life of crazy codependency instead of detaching. And, and there's so much, there's so much to unpack here. But that first step is to just realize, oh, wait. It's actually not your responsibility to give me a peaceful life. It's that's my choice and I can choose that and I can take that power back. But the key is it has nothing to do with your choices. No, I would agree. So, this is a tricky concept and and here's where I think it affects a lot of us is it can affect us as far as 
having to say something that's difficult to someone that you love, but you know it's the right thing to say or do. And then you're obsessing about how they're going to take it or what their reaction is going to be where you you can't control that. You have to do what's right and then let the chips fall where they may. That's a great example of how codependency can affect lots of relationships, not just my relationship with my addict, recovering addict husband, but also my relationship with maybe one of my siblings or my parents, people that I love and respect and want so deeply and badly to have a good relationship with. But there might be times where I have to choose something or say something or do something that they may not react the way that I would hope they react. And letting go of codependency is letting go of my expectations of how they will react to my choices or to hard conversations or things like that. So that's that's one example. How does codependency show up for you, Neil, in your everyday life as an addict? Oh, as an addict, first of all, I didn't think that I was a codependent until they explained that in the outpatient program. They're like, kind of explain a little bit about what that is. And I thought to myself, man, I am that totally that way. Because when I would get into a relationship at that point, we were dating. It was kind of like that person and kind of who they were and what they were doing in their life or what they wanted, especially like that kind of ran me. I think it was like well-intended. I wanted to be everything you wanted me to be. And and luckily our values are aligned in a way that, that that's truth, like we're based on truth. But I think in the situation that it's really detrimental or the way that I saw it manifest itself in our relationship was when I would withhold something or be secretive, be discovered, you'd figure it out, find out that I'd lied about it or hidden something or I'd act out and you would, you would find out that you'd be upset, be angry. And then I would feel that kind of, I don't know if you want to call it like a, a control or feel controlled. Like, okay, Mm -hmm. this person is like giving me ultimatums. This person is expressing their anger at me. This person wants me to feel the, the same level of hurt and anger they feel. They want me to feel that. I did. I wanted you to feel the wrath. And so, yeah. <laughs> or the which, hurt. Or which is understandable. Pain. Yeah. But, and then in my mind, I'm like, well, that is right. I should feel that. And so I'm trying to take all of that on and be codependent in that way. But the side effect of that in being codependent and trying to like take all of that on and do all of those things is resentment is I would then be like, okay, I not only feel bad about myself, my mistake here, my relapse, but now I'm feeling bad on top of that. It's compounded by taking on all of this, trying to take on all of the things, the emotion, the anger, all of these things that is being displaced onto, onto me. And then I'm resentful about that. And then what do I do with that as an addict? I turn to the solution that I've always turned to, which is my addiction. So then that would spin me. Eventually, I'd just be so resentful. And then that would spin me back into more acting out on my addiction. And it just became this dance that we would do. So then it was me acting out on my addiction. Okay, I'm frustrated. And then, all right, well, I got to talk to my wife about it. So then I talk to you. And then there's more feelings, emotions, anger, frustrations. And that comes back at me. And then I'm resentful with it. That again turns me to my my addiction, and it's just back and forth. And you're just doing this dance, 
And that's kind of how our relationship looked at that, at that time for a for long time. Seven years. Yeah. Yeah. Because I remember saying, I am seven years tired of this when I found out about your last relapse. Yeah. One thing I do want to say, though, that is an important part of recovery. There is an element, a very important element, and this is why I bring it up. As an addict, especially of like pornography or if it's sex addiction or whatever, there is an element of of really battling for your wife and validating those emotions and focusing on those emotions in a healthy way and, and, and trying to be charitable and understanding it it doesn't work for me. What I found in my addiction is the recovery is that it doesn't work to just try and totally bury those or not validate, or it's not going to help anybody in the relationship. Those feelings need to be validated. And there was a phrase that helped me. It was like, Hey, if you don't, if you don't focus on your wife's pain, she will, she will focus on her own pain and it will, it will not help the situation. Mm, so so there is a difference between, Hey, look, I'm me and I just need to focus on my stuff and fix me. That's true, but there is an element of I need to have a relationship with my spouse and be able to focus on what she's feeling and be able to do that in a way that's not codependent and generating resentment. And that's such a great point, Neil, because I think there is a huge difference between codependency and compassion. And when you look at the Savior and how he dealt with so much pain and so much suffering and sorrow and healing that he did, when he went around and saw people who were suffering, he had immense compassion for people. But what he didn't do is take on people's pain and then make their actions after that his responsibility. Let's take the woman found in adultery, for example, okay? So people wanted to cast stones at her. They were going to stone her. They said, what should we do? And he said, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. And then everybody felt stupid and left. And she was there alone. And Jesus was like, you know, where are thine accusers? And she said, there are none. And then he told her to go and sin no more. And he showed her so much love and compassion and that she had worth and she was this beloved child of God. And then he said, go and sin no more. And he didn't say, well, I better put a tracking device on her and make sure she doesn't do anything wrong so that she never feels the pain of her sins ever again. Because I got to make sure that I save her by controlling her choices. Jesus never did that. And I think that it's our responsibility to show true kindness and love and compassion toward others but to not take on their actions as our own. And that's the key, right? That's where with you, I was like, well, I'm not going to be duped or I'm going to make sure that he doesn't make these mistakes anymore so that we can have a peaceful life. And that is not the Savior's way. So even like going back to what I said about where people will sometimes say you're only as happy as your most unhappy child, if you look at that, you look at if you believe what we believe in and you believe that we believe that there was a council in heaven, there was a heavenly father and mother and and that Jesus and Satan presented two different plans and that one third of all of heavenly father's children chose to follow Satan. That's what we believe. And do I think that after that, 
that our heavenly parents have just always been sad. Like, I think probably they feel sadness, but I don't think that that has, my guess is that they have not just felt like they can never experience happiness or joy because their children chose a different path. And there are all kinds of examples in the scriptures, even if you don't believe what we believe. Let's go to a biblical example of Cain and Abel. Like, obviously, that's a horrible story and super sad that these siblings chose to battle each other and one killed the other. But do I think that from that point on, Adam and Eve were never happy again? I mean, I think that for sure there's there's sadness that you have to deal with when people choose things that you wouldn't choose for them. But does that dictate the rest of your life, your ability to have peace or joy or happiness or freedom? That's where it shouldn't dictate the rest of your life or the even the current state of your life. Now, it's different if you've got like little kids, right? You got to work with kids, like children that are growing up in your home. But once people reach adulthood, that's where I think a lot of times that compassion and codependency get murky. It gets very confused where people feel like they have to take on someone else's problems and that it's their job to be that person's savior when actually the savior never saved people by controlling their choices. Yeah. No, I think the big component of this that stands out to me in talking about the topic is is agency. That that was the thing that with our beliefs, that's that was like a key component, the key component, aside from Christ coming in and doing what he did with the atonement, was agency. Mm-hmm. Was for everyone to have the power of choice. That was something that was so essential and is so key to the whole plan that it would make sense you know, down here on earth that that's something that would go wrong if we're trying to eliminate that or if we're trying to take away someone else's agency, then that's problematic and that's not going to be right. But yeah, there are instances, I think just in working with my experience and working with other addicts or people who suffer, like this is something that I've had to navigate because I do want so much for somebody and I, I understand the problem. I understand a lot of times what they're going through and the triggers and the relapses and all of the things that come along with it. And you want so bad for somebody to get well, to make good choices, to choose to take the right actions. But a lot of times they don't. But even in that, I understand. But it's the component of always having to allow them the space and the grace to make mistakes and learn from them. Like I can't, if I take that away, then it's me working their program Mm -hmm. for them. Yep. And they don't get any better. They just get worse because then they can blame it on somebody else. That well, my sponsor, he said this, or he didn't call me at the right moment, or he didn't do that. So let's talk about how when I broke off and stopped my codependent behaviors how that also affected your program and your recovery at that point. Because what I think is so interesting is people feel like they need to chase, chase, run, run, like run as fast as that person's addiction is running them until they stop running. And then they realize a lot of times that 
suddenly that addict is free to work their own program or to sit in their own mistakes or to realize that they can't put it on someone. Let's go back to the example of Jesus. Like, like imagine if Jesus was like, well, I'm going to hang out with you for the next month and make sure you don't make any mistakes. And then at some point Jesus is like, well, now I can't hang out with you anymore. And I got to go, I got to go take care of this other person and make sure they don't make any mistakes. Suddenly when Jesus leaves and isn't controlling that girl anymore or making sure she doesn't make any missteps, then she realizes like, oh, wait, I still have imperfect things that I have to work on. And now there's not someone here to blame it on or to say like, well, you left me. So I think that the lie that a codependent person tells themselves is like, no, they need me. Like they will not survive without me. But a lot of times when you remove yourself from trying to run someone else's program, they are finally free to run it themselves. Yeah. Well, and the way that it was explained to me, it was something my sponsor talked to me about. He worked in recovery and he says, in watching what I've seen, this is him talking. He says, I've, I've seen a lot of families that it's almost like they're chasing the addict. They're chasing, trying to save them because the addict is running for a cliff. They're going to run and jump off this cliff and the family sees it. They're like, oh my gosh, like stop, 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 stop. So they chase. And the more they chase, the faster the addict runs. And what he was saying was, is he's like, once the family stops chasing the addict, a lot of times the addict will stop and be like, wait a minute, what am I doing? there's a cliff and okay, like they're not chasing me, me anymore. I'm not running from them. What am I running from? And then it, it causes this, this introspective search to where it's like, look, what is the problem? And then that's where the recovery begins to where it's like, okay, well, let me take responsibility for myself. So back to us and our example, that was a moment in our relationship that was just very definitive and powerful is I remember working the steps. I'd started, I'd, I finally got to the point where I'm like, man, I got a chip on my shoulder about this ARP stuff. I've it's watered down AA. I've done all the, the stuff that's better. Like I was just at a, at a dead end, basically I'd relapsed and I'm like, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just beyond hope. But I did believe what somebody said in the meeting who led the meeting. He's like, look, just do the steps, get a sponsor, take the action. So I'm like, all right, I'll give it a, I'll give it a go. I'll try whatever. So I started working the steps. I'm in the front room in this little office that we have. I'm I'm working in my, my little ARP manual. I'm answering the questions. And then Corinne walks in and she just, I remember this is so clear to me. She just says, Hey, whatever you do or don't do in recovery, if you choose to get better or not, all you like, I'm okay. I will be fine. And I will be okay. That's my memory of what you mm-hmm. said. It might've been something a little different, but no, that's, that's basically my memory. Like, too. And, and it wasn't just a ploy to be like, well, fine then just go do whatever you want to go do. Like, I had it's done all, that you know, before. I'd, I'd heard that yeah. before. This was way different. This it was wasn't like very, a screw you. Fine. Like, like do fine, whatever you go want. Act out, no, go look like at one. If you want to do that, you know, it wasn't like that type of a tone. It was like, Hey, seriously, all you, like, I will be fine. Whatever you do. I took it as like, oh, she has a connection with God. She's going to work in her own program. So what that did is that put me 100% in the driver's seat of my own destiny. As far as my agency is concerned, I was still powerless over my addiction, but it put it back on me to make the choice to take the actions 
that were going to put me to where I needed to be, like open myself up to the atonement, essentially work the steps. So once that happened, I was like, man, shoot, okay, I can no longer blame this on my wife. Like, hey, my wife's, you know, this, or she's coming down on me or whatever. Like, it's all me. My, my choices, sink or swim, are my choices, and I have to live with the consequences. What do I want to do? And it changed. It changed a lot of things. Well, and even with, I feel like, someone who's not necessarily an addict, but people who you have relationships with who choose things that are different than what you hope or expect that they'll choose, living a life outside of codependency is, an every for me, an everyday practice of reminding myself constantly that my happiness is a direct result of my connection with God. However connected I am with God, is that is the source of peace. And that is the source of my true happiness and joy. And yes, you can still absolutely feel sorrow and compassion and even pain and anguish and all those things that come with life. And we've certainly been through plenty of that. But the key is to not put your happiness in someone else's choices. Because when you do that, you're basically just living in not only codependency, but victimhood too. I've seen that play out even like with our children, you know, even like we have young children and sometimes they make mistakes or choices that I would not make for them. And the temptation is to be like, no, 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 you don't want to make that choice because then your life's going to look like this. And what I have to remind myself as a recovering codependent is if I take that away from them, then they don't get to experience that for themselves. And I'm putting my well-being in the hands of a seven-year-old or a nine-year-old or a four-year-old or whatever. And I have to constantly remind myself that my peace and happiness has to come from a connection with God. And then in turn, too, I feel like when I'm less crazy codependent, even with our kids, about wanting them to get along or not fight or get good grades or do what I ask them to do or whatever, they feel so much more secure to having parents who are not acting codependent, where I'm not acting like I need them to perform a certain way in order for me to be a happy mom. Yeah, And it's not something that like, I nailed it and I'm good now. This is, I live a program all the time where I'm trying to remind myself, oh, wait, stop. That's a codependent behavior. I need to just make choices and and still lovingly teach and direct and show compassion and hold space, like you said, for truly caring about other people, but not letting their choices dictate my happiness. That's what I, that's the tape that I have to play over and over and remind myself of all the time that it's my choice to be connected with God and find peace and happiness in life. Yeah. Totally. And I do think with all of this, there's a, there is a caveat to this. I think in some situations, obviously, like if there's a, if there's danger, like someone's going to, oh, as yeah. a hazard to themselves, they're going to hurt themselves. They're going to hurt somebody else. Like in the example of a little kid, they're going to run into the street. Of course, you're not going to be like, well, I don't want to be codependent. No, no, it. no. I'm of let course. You. Like when it comes to, if it's like, hey, this person, and I actually ran into this in the past month of just a situation where there was danger for somebody and and typically where I would hang back and kind of not say anything like, all right, let them make 
their mistakes or choices or whatever. And this is in recovery. Um, this too. is in recovery. Then I had to be like, okay, actually, I do need to say something to somebody here. This is important because it doesn't involve a, a, a different situation. But that aside, yeah, I mean, it's so important to to be able to see that. And I see that with our kids too. Like when I allow them, when I'm in a good place, mm-hmm. like again, this is a real time thing that I'm trying to learn and figure out and get better at. But when I'm in a good, good place and I allow them the opportunity to have agency and not be codependently trying to control them and get them to do what I think they should do 100% of the time. It's almost amazing to to watch, step back a little bit and watch them take command and take their own responsibilities and be like, actually, no, I want to, I want to do this for me or like, I want to do my homework. Yep. And I, or let him, you know, letting them kind of feel the the pain of that, of like, man, I, I went to turn in my homework today and my teacher told me that I'm missing a bunch of assignments. I'm like, well, what do you think about that? How do you, how do you feel? How's what it making you, you feel? What yeah. do you want? Do you want to do anything differently or what would you like to do? Well, this is another important part too, that I think I learned through my journey of constantly being in recovery from codependency was when you went through grief and your grief stages. And especially when you went through your anger phase, I had to constantly work harder than I had worked in a few years on my program of staying in recovery from codependency. And grief is tricky because at first you feel like compassion looks like constantly checking on someone. How are you doing? Are you doing okay? Do you need to talk about anything? Especially if you're married to someone like you who isn't always going to lead with your emotions. But I realized after a while that I was running a codependent program of taking care of your grief, where I had to finally step back and say, wait a minute, this is not my responsibility to run Neil's grief program or his grief journey. Like that's his journey. And it's going to take as long as it takes. And me constantly asking him how he's doing and feeling like I I had a responsibility to make sure you were okay all the time it got to a point where I, I felt it. I felt like this is unhealthy. This is at an unhealthy rate where I feel like I have this responsibility to make you okay. And I had to stop and say, wait a minute, this is the savior's responsibility to, to fully give you comfort and peace. I cannot provide peace that will pass all understanding like Jesus and the scriptures defines peace. And I remember, especially when you went through that anger phase, having to go back to the roots of my recovery program from codependency to say, it's okay that Neil is choosing anger and it's okay that this is how he's processing this. And it's not about me in the same way that addictive behaviors are actually not about the people around you. It's about pain management and that your anger was pain management in the moment. And that I had to get back on my knees and ask the Savior to give me peace and understanding and charity and all of those things that are fruits of the Spirit that allowed me to get through that time when you were struggling. And and not even that you were making bad choices, but just that you were going through something that I couldn't control and I couldn't do enough to make you feel peace and happiness. And I was taking that on 
where like that was Jesus's job, not my job to make you feel better. And once I realized that and started working my program again of trying to overcome codependency and to just get that really strong connection with God, I realized, oh yeah, this is this is the Savior's responsibility and and that's his role to play in your life and in your grief process. And my role is to yes, care and to be compassionate, but ultimately to allow you to do that in your time, in your way, when you were ready. That was another level of codependency that I had to recognize in myself and be willing to work through. Yeah. No, that was a tough one. That one's tough because it's harder to see it. At least for me, that was the main challenge. It's like I it was so convincing to to be the anger, the frustration, and like obviously there's a lot of displacement with that where you're just putting that around onto the people around you and you don't even realize it. Um, but it's trying to figure out how to take that on myself as far as the responsibility of working through it and doing the work that I needed to do to get to the place that I needed to be and not be codependent either reliant wise on somebody else and like kind of, Hey, make me feel better, fix this. But, or also that turns into kind of like frustration when it's not working the same way, or you can displace that emotion on, on that same person. So really kind of creating that separation and taking responsibility for my own grief and working through the process of it. Yeah, that was a tough one. It was just another, a different way of mm-hmm. having to work a program and applying the same principles to a different scenario that, and that was my question going into it. I'm like, okay, I've been through addiction and, and applied the 12 steps and applied these principles. I, I know they're truths. Is this going to apply to this scenario now when I'm facing grief? And principles are principles, truths are truths, like eternal principles. And yes. But learning how to apply them and what that looked like, it took a little bit of time to figure it out. So I'm just looking at my Instagram, and we didn't leave this up for very long, so there's not a lot of responses yet. I would imagine that more will come in. But for now, there's a couple of questions on here, and one of them is how to lovingly talk to someone who you can see is struggling about being a codependent, (laughs) which is funny kind of because that question is a little bit codependent too. And in recovery, it's hard because really true recovery is letting people discover that for themselves. It's kind of like, oh, I see someone who I can tell that they're addicted to something. How do I talk to them? And again, where you were talking about, is someone in danger? Are they going to hurt themselves? Is this life-threatening? There's a difference between that and between letting someone kind of come to their own discovery. Because as soon as you're trying to tell, like convince someone that they have a problem and they're not convinced themselves, I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on that? That is a very situational and fine line type of a conversation. Like, you know, results may vary. Like it's, it's, it's just kind of tough to to really have a hard and fast time of like, this is when you do say something and this is when you don't say something. Like but obviously to, you want to go by the spirit on that. Yeah. I'm trying to think back though. If someone had told me when we were dating, like this is actually a really codependent relationship, I would have been like, no, it's not. Like 
I'm going to these classes and I know all about codependency and I'm that and which you know is I you mean? actually see a lot of that. Like I hear yeah. Yeah. A lot of that. Yeah. And or I've been to therapy or I read a book and like I know what codependency is and I'm not like that. And and yet it's easier a lot of times for other people outside of the situation to see than it is for you to see yourself. So that's tricky because really I kind of agree with you that it's situational, but most of the time I would say for me to feel like I needed to have a conversation with someone because I could see that they were being codependent, it would need to be by the spirit for me. It would need to be the spirit telling me like, hey, it's the right time and you you should bring this up to this person and talk to them and then really relying on the spirit to help me to know what to say because it's super delicate. It's, it is very similar to trying to tell someone, hey, I think you have a problem. Yeah. Like you imagine someone that's drinking all the time and they think they don't have a problem and you having to sit them down and say, I think you've got a problem here. How, how well that's going to go over with someone who's getting drunk all the time and they don't think they have a problem. And oftentimes the only thing that really will work and in, in what I find in recovery is like, another addict speaking to like somebody who's in recovery speaking to that person in a moment where they're maybe a little bit open to it or you know they just they are kind of coming out of a bender and and then there's another person that comes in and shares their story of like hey i this is me this is what life looked like this is what i went through this is what life looks like now oftentimes that can can be the right conversation to to make some changes happen so in the i guess in the instance of a codependency it's like if there's a recovering codependent who's who's had some experiences and i don't know if it would work the same way yeah but here's the thing that i think back on what was most effective with me and why it worked so well when mandy because Mandy knew us for years. She watched us go through ups and downs and I would talk to her and she knew our story. And that was not the first time I called her. But when I called her and said the magic words of, I can't live like this anymore. And she said, and even then she still asked me, do you just need someone to listen to you or do you want to do something about it? And I, when I said, I'll do anything, that was the key. That was the time that she said, then you need to work the steps and even then I resisted it. Even then I was like, uh, no, it's his problem, not mine. But because I had said, I'll do anything. She was like, seriously, you, you're, it's not going to get better with him. You're not going to change his behaviors. You can only find peace for yourself. And you, there is a way for you to do that. You have access to the answers. You just have to be willing to put in the work. If I think back on that, I wasn't ready until I was ready. And that's kind of how it is usually with addicts too. So I guess a very long answer to that is you probably can't really tell someone that they have a problem. You got to envision like having a conversation with a drunk with a beer in their hand trying to tell them they have a problem. Probably is that's how well it's going to go if you try to sit someone down and tell them they're codependent. Yeah. No, or I mean, if the spirit if the, right. it prompts you to, and it's by the if it's by the power of the spirit, which I think sometimes you can be, and I've heard people share those experiences in recovery where it's like somebody in a moment was like, "Hey, you need to change, or you're going to die," and it like really set in with them. But obviously, you've got to have the right 
situation and really feeling like that's the right thing you need to say powerfully. So, Well, here's one other example. And I think this is where my codependency really took off was when I was in college and I had a boyfriend who started cheating on me and everybody knew it. I mean, I even knew it. And then we were in, you know, how you see people go through these up and downs of really unhealthy relationships where they break up and they get back together and they break up and they get back together. And I was in a relationship like that. It was so unhealthy and everybody could see it. And my parents tried to talk to me about it and other people tried to talk to me about it. And I wouldn't listen to anyone. And I know that my parents were praying during that whole time that something would click, that some answer would come, that I would finally realize how unhealthy that relationship was. And here was the answer was at the time I worked for a summer sales company and we had a meeting at my parents' house. So I was in school in Provo. We had a meeting up in Bountiful. So an hour away from where we were at school. And I, I think I gathered a bunch of kids that I had gone to high school with. And that's why we had the meeting at my parents' house. So It was a bunch of kids who were at like the perfect age to go out for summer sales. We gathered at my parents' house. We were there till like 10, 30 p.m. And the two guys that ran the meetings or that meeting were guys that were married with kids, two super good guys. And at the end of the meeting, they're wrapping up, they're going home. It's like 10, 30 p.m. And it clicked for me. Something clicked where I watched these two really good guys packing up their stuff, getting in their cars, heading home. And I thought to myself, if I marry this guy, I will never be able to trust him. I would never be able to trust that he would go out with some young, pretty girl that and say like, oh, I'm going to have a meeting up in Bountiful and be gone all night. And for me to not worry all night long about, is he telling me the truth? Is he hooking up with someone? Is he doing something other than what he said he was doing? And all it was was an example of two men that were honest and true to their word and like really good guys that made me realize, wait, this is not the life that I want. So it did not come. The answer to my parents' prayer of me realizing that I was in a super unhealthy codependent relationship did not come from them sitting me down or someone else sitting me down. It came from my own realization at one point where I said, wait, that's not the life I want. So I think that one of the best things you can do, this sounds super cheesy, but pray for that person that you love that either they'll have a situation that where they will have that self-discovery moment or that you'll be guided by the Spirit to know how to help them. And then let the Spirit, like let Jesus take the wheel, like let Him be the one that saves that person. So I hope this helped you with your codependency questions. And this month, I'm really looking forward to sharing more on my Instagram at Corinne Stoko about codependency and the things that I've learned. And there's so much more to unpack and so many things that I've learned through trial and error about how to live in recovery from codependency. And even if you're not a raging codependent like I used to be, but you have some codependent tendencies or behaviors in your life that you'd like to get better with because you want a clear connection with God and you want to find peace for yourself and not wait for other people around you to give you permission to feel peace because of their choices, then hopefully we can give you some of those resources and and help you out with that. But in the meantime, my parting advice for you today would be that 
you don't need to put your happiness in anyone else's hands. You have the ability to choose peace and joy from the Savior and from God all on your own. And there is a way to find that. And and the simplest answer is to make sure that connection with God is really strong and that you're putting all of the problems and burdens on Him. And you're not trying to carry them yourself. You're not trying to fix someone else's problems or make sure that they're okay or make sure that you are preventing them from causing more pain for themselves. You got to let other people find the Savior or find grace or find God for themselves. And then you also have to work yourself to find that for your own peace and happiness too. Thanks so much for listening to Mint Arrow Messages. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Mint Arrow. Subscribe to our Apple Podcasts and rate and review us if you like us. And to get show notes, go to mintarrow.com slash podcast. And you can even sign up to get show notes emailed right to your inbox. And we'll email you every time there's a new episode.